This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. At 26 Shirts, a different Buffalo-themed design is sold every two weeks. 52 divided by 2 is 26, hence the name 26 Shirts. Here's the best part. For every shirt sold, a donation is made to either a local family in need or a worthy charity. Since 2013, their designs have managed to raise and donate over $650,000. Head over to 26shirts.com and see what cause needs you this week. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, what's going on, everyone? How you doing? What's up? Welcome to episode 162 of the Moranalytics Podcast, presented today by our friends over at 26shirts.com. Today is Friday, October 18, 2019. Thank you, as always, for listening and for downloading. If you have not yet subscribed to this future award-winning podcast, what's the matter with you, man? Go ahead and do so right now. Coming up on the show today, I'll be joined by Buffalo Bills beat reporter Matt Perino from NewYorkUp.com. Recurring guest on this podcast, by the way, is third time on. We talk Buffalo Bills, and I am telling you right now, Matt brings a ton, and I mean a ton of information during this interview. Injury updates in great detail, perspective on them, player evaluations, all kinds of stuff. And the God here, man, I'm not just saying this. I've had more Buffalo Bills themed segments on this podcast since this podcast launched, and I can even count at this point. And seriously, this is one of the best Buffalo Bills segments I've ever had. Not because of me, Matt. It's awesome. Matt was awesome. He's an awesome dude as well. And we spent a little time talking about his life as a second-year Bills beat reporter as well. Some of the things that he's been up to, how he deals with the trolls that are surely out there increasing. That's what happens when you become well-known. Legit, really good stuff with Matt, man. Any, and I mean any Buffalo Bills fan should want to hear this segment. I promise you, you're going to get something out of it for sure. What I can't promise is that you're going to want to hear my secondary segment today. It's focused on 80s music. But it's going to be happening anyway. Captain, I put up earlier in the week a series of 12 podcast polls, and they were all centered around the best of 80s music, 12 different categories. People voted on Twitter. And I'm going to share those results with you later on in this podcast and have a few thoughts on some of those voting decisions. Definitely something different and something that I'll be doing on this show every, not all the time, but once every five, six weeks, seven weeks, something like that. Once in a in a blue moon. So both those things coming up. Before I get to Matt, though, a few podcasting things that I want to take care of. Coming up on the show next Tuesday, I'll be having Brian Cozio from WGR 550. We'll be talking plenty of Buffalo Sabres because we're not doing that today. Which, in a way, to be honest, it's kind of a shame. I mean, the team's 5-1-1 after seven games. I'm taping this, by the way, this opening Thursday evening, but before the Sabres play at 10 o'clock at night. So I don't know how the Sabres did on Thursday night. When you might wake up and hear this, and they might be on a Ugly two-game winning streak for all I know. But as of right now, they're playing really well. The game in Anaheim Wednesday night, the wheels really fell off defensively. But outside of that, not much to complain about. This has been a really fun Sabres hockey team right now. And the Stars are playing like Stars. And that's what makes this season fun. Jack Eichel, he's in the top 10 in scoring right now. Olsen's already got six goals. Reinhardt looks great. Skinner looks great. Johansson looks like a really good addition. Darlene's got a ton of points already on defense. It's just a bunch of stars playing like stars, and 
It's making for a really fun season so far. That could change, but so far it's been a lot of fun. So anyway, me and Brian will talk Sabres, and we'll talk about his life and his career, all kinds of other stuff like I usually do when I have a sports media guest on, especially for the first time. Then on Friday's show, I'm going to have NFL insider Adam Kaplan. He's going to be my guest based in Philly, and he'll help us get ready for the Buffalo Bills-Philadelphia Eagles game. Always love talking to Adam. I'm sure that'll be really good stuff. Also, make sure if you have not yet done so already that you're subscribed to the Analytics Podcast YouTube channel. There, you're going to find audio content exclusive to that channel. You ain't going to find it anywhere else, including this podcast. I got tons of things brewing there. Lots of audio content, original audio content up there. So I'm putting in a lot of work. Go hit up YouTube, type in Analytics Podcast, and subscribe to that. Last thing, and I'm sure this excites probably only me, but I take a lot of pride in the production and the audio quality of this podcast, if nothing else. And I already have some really nice gear. I mean, I'm being completely honest, probably nicer gear than the average podcaster. But anyway, I ordered this machine. Not going to get into details because it's not going to waste your time here much, any more than I need to at the top. You're probably not going to know what I'm talking about. But anyway, I ordered this machine that is designed solely for podcasting and live streaming. It's an unbelievable machine. I've wanted to get it forever. I finally decided to pull the trigger. I'm so happy I did. It's going to make this show sound even better more cool features, and this new toy is slated to arrive to my house on Saturday. And I'll tell you right now, other than that Buffalo Bills game Sunday, I may not leave my home office until my next podcast drops the following Tuesday as I try to learn how to use and implement that thing right away. But anyway, hopefully you will hear a difference once I start using that. Maybe if not next Tuesday, definitely by the end of next week. But anyway. I want to get into today's interview. Honestly, again, one of the best I've had on this podcast to date. Let's get really in-depth. Some Buffalo Bills talk featuring Matt Perino. Let's do it. All right, my guest today is the Buffalo Bills beat reporter at NewYorkUp.com. With this appearance on the podcast, he's also joining a very exclusive three-time featured guest on the Analytics Podcast Club. My man, Matt Perino, what's going on, dude? What's up, man? Always great to be on the uh, Analytics Pod. I feel like I'm, uh, like you said, a, a veteran of the game at this point. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, man. You got Tim Graham and Sal Capaccio. I'm going through this list here. Mike Harrington, Jay Skursky, well, also Chris Baker, Joe Yurden, Eric Wood, too. So, Maybe not such an exclusive club, but still, man, that's a really solid three-time club, man. Glad to have you on again. Definitely, and that's the elite of the elite right there, so I'm, I'm honored. <laughs> Let's start with some Buffalo Bills talk, and uh, maybe at the end of the interview, I got a couple things I want to talk about, you know, your second year now on the beat, things like that. But let's get right to down to uh, some Bills business here. Health updates, okay? When the Bills got back to practice on Wednesday after the bye, Tyler Croft, Singletary, Teron Johnson, Mitch Morris, Cody Ford, Trent Murphy, all of them who have either missed time over the last handful of games or in Croft's case the entire season or got hurt in that Tennessee game. They all look good to play. They were all full on Wednesday and as well as we take this late into Thursday as well. So looking pretty good for all of them being on the field Sunday, including potentially Tyler Croft for the first time this year. Yeah, I think um, uh, Tyler Croft and, and Singletary are definitely trending toward towards playing, but there's a little voice in my head that keeps popping up in the last couple of weeks to Sean McDermott mentioning that, you know, they've taken into account uh, where they're at in their schedule, what was coming up, uh, the game itself, and, you know, for all intents and purposes, I mean, this is like going to be an exhibition game. I mean, Miami is not very good on either side of the ball. They're dealing with some of the, some injuries as well. So it wouldn't be uh, crazy if Singletary somehow find, managed to find himself inactive again this week because Frank Gore has been running it so well. And if you haven't noticed, this, this Buffalo Bills offensive line uh, ranked first by football outsiders as a top run blocking unit in the NFL right now. That was the Patriots in 20, uh, 2018, so they're doing pretty good. I don't think it matters who's back there right now with the way that this offensive line is playing, so that is where I think that you can maybe see him kept out. Um, I also think that they probably shouldn't push the envelope too much with Matt Milano and Sean McDermott today when he spoke to the media 
kind of reiterated that as well. They, they said they're, we'll see where he's at, even though he's been limited. Uh, he still hasn't been uh, – that hamstring injury, you've got to be careful with those. And you've seen how they've kind of treated it with kid gloves with Taron Johnson throughout the first uh, few weeks of this season. So, yeah, a lot of guys that could be back in the mix, I think the most likely to play is Tyler Croft. We talked to him, and he said it was two straight days now uh, of uh, full practice, and he feels good to go at this point. So, it, barring a setback, I think Tyler Croft could be back in the mix on Sunday. You brought up a couple good points, and one of them was talking about Miami, how in some ways it feels like an exhibition game. I tend to agree with you. However, at the same token, the Bills are 17-point favorites. I don't love this offense enough to be 17-point favorites against anybody. Does it worry you just maybe a little bit, especially with Ryan Fitzpatrick playing? I mean, that dude is always good to come out of nowhere and have a couple of those horseshoe up his ass games per year. And this kind of sort of feels like it might be one. This might be his last crack to ever start again in the NFL. Now, don't get me wrong. They're inferior in talent to Buffalo. There's no question about that. So in that regards, it does feel like an exhibition game. But you get a little bit worried about Buffalo being this big of a favorite against even a bad team like Miami. Uh, I think you bring up a good point. This offense hasn't been uh, gangbusters by any stretch through the first five weeks, but Josh Allen has actually thrown the ball really well against Miami. It's one of the teams that he's had the most success against, five passing touchdowns in two uh, matchups against them, and I think that their defense maybe not isn't even as good last year. You, you talk about Minka Fitzpatrick now not in the mix. Um, a, a pass rush that's not really super intimidating and an offensive line that's been reconstructed and is, is even better than a year ago. And I think that, you know, the jump from New England to Tennessee, the huge step back, the three interceptions to the efficient effort that he had against Tennessee, I think that that's something to build on. And he continues to say the right things. He continues to say he can't make these you know, boneheaded decisions and try to fit balls into places that, you know, the, the the likelihood of it ending well is not very high. So I think that all the things that they're they're building on makes me think that there's not going to be a setback here. And Sean McDermott's, you know, day, daily reminder to this team is one day at a time, one opponent at a time, one week at a time. This is a very... Um, you know, a, a group that is very motivated in the moment, and and it's a it's a mature group. So I, I don't anticipate that being the case. And again, I, I've watched that game back a couple times. Josh Rosen back there uh, against the Washington last week for the Dolphins. Josh Rosen back there. Fitzpatrick back there. That offensive line is not blocking anybody. This could be a big game for this Bills defensive front. You mentioned Tyler Croft earlier. He's likely to make his uh, Bills debut on Sunday. How important, or what kind of role, I should say, do you think he'll have in this offense if he is indeed active on Sunday? How much do you think it will affect Dawson Knox, who's been a little bit inconsistent, but at the same token has played very well at times, showed a lot of promise. I mean, he looks like a potential future star at the position. And, and like in regards to like Tommy Sweeney, if Croft's playing, is Tommy Sweeney Probably going to be on the sidelines in, uh, you know, the official team sweatsuit come Sunday afternoon. Yeah, that's probably what ends up being the case, and it's a shame, too, because I think that you look back to the offseason and how things went, and to get Tyler Croft for the deal that they got, and it's very front-loaded, I think, looked really good at that time, but then to spend two draft picks on tight ends and have them be as good as they've been early on, I think that that's kind of the disappointment. And you look around at some of the national outlets uh, bringing up uh, trade targets, and a lot of them are mentioning uh, Tyler Croft as someone the Bills should move on from. And I can understand that because of how good Sweeney and Knox have been. And for Knox, I think that you know his... 15 and a half yards per catch average uh, is pretty significant. He's dropping a few balls. Uh, there was one uh, on a third down in the Tennessee game that was one of those where you just kind of face palm yourself a little bit if you're a Bills fan because it, it's a drive killer and those kind of plays you have to make for your quarterback. And I think that Tyler Croft brings an element. Uh, an experienced element to the offense. Uh, he's a little bit more well-rounded than uh, – I shouldn't even say that because Dawson Knox has been – has exceeded my greatest expectations that I had for him as a run blocker. He's been sure. really good in that department. But Tyler Croft brings that same kind of skill set to the table. He can do kind of both things. So I think that the interesting thing is going to be – I saw today in practice 
They were working the three tight ends, Sweeney, Decker, and uh, Lee Smith, uh, with the tight ends coach, Rob Boris, uh, blocking drills. And then they had Croft and Knox running routes for Josh Allen. So it got me to thinking, and I asked him about it, and he said it would be fun, and he doesn't game plan, but it would be fun. We could be seeing them both on the field at the same time, especially when they go to those five pass catcher stats, um, you know, with a running back out there, maybe a couple of receivers, and maybe even Croft and Knox out there at the same time. Well, Dawson Knox has been effective. I'm looking at the stats. Now. He's only got like 25 less receiving yards in, what, five games than Charles Clay had all of last year in 13 games with Buffalo. One other question, too, and I'm glad you said this. You mentioned Dawson Knox. Really, he caught you by surprise at how good of a blocker he is. Do you think that might ultimately influence, maybe not, not this week, but later in the season? Because I can't ever see the Bills playing four tight ends among their 46 on the game day. Do you think it's possible that you might see some Tommy Sweeney later on in the year, and if they feel good enough about Croft and Dawson Knox blocking, then that could lead to a couple Lee Smith being inactives? Because, I mean, yeah, he scored a touchdown last week, and he's known as a blocker, but the dude's also had, I think, what, five penalties or something like that in the last two games. You can't just discount that. Yeah, I put out a story back in training camp because I wanted to talk to Lee because he's seen so much in this league about Tommy, particularly when Dawson Knox was dealing with the hamstring. And he said, listen, I I root for these guys, and and I fully expect that at some point uh, during this three-year contract I signed that one of them is going to probably lead to the end of my career because I want to finish my career here. So he, I think, is aware of that development. But with that said, you always have to remember the mindset of this coaching staff, this front office, and go back to what Sean McDermott said. He wants a leader in every position group. And Lee Smith has come in and been one of those real uh, leaders on this offensive side of the ball, especially even for Josh Allen. You go back to when he was struggling uh, in that one game. I think it was a, a video the Bills actually put out, and he said – listen, you take the credit for when when things are going bad and you put it on your shoulders. You you take the credit when things are going good, too. And, and so he's a guy that has the ear of the quarterback, the most important guy on this roster, and he's a real leader. So I think there's something to that, especially for this team and this coach. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting. And there's no rush with Tommy Sweeney. He's a seventh-round draft pick. He still has a lot to, to learn. I think the expectations are higher for Dawson Knox. He's a third-round pick. So I don't think that there's any rush. But I think going forward – I think the person that might be from 2019 to 2020, the person that most likely is in, in the most jeopardy is Croft because of how much they're paying him and the fact they can get out of it for the most part after the season. Okay, one guy I forgot to mention among those who's been injured but came back is Robert Foster. And conversely, popping up on the injury report this week, who seemingly was healthy before this, this past week, is a wide receiver John Brown, who's been a very big part of this offense. Two parts here. One, what, from what you've heard, how's John Brown looking so far this week? And two, Robert Foster's back out there in full. He's probably going to be the guy that if Brown can't go, that they're going to count on to kind of pick up the slack there. Yeah, I mean, if I'm Robert Foster, I'm just chomping at the bit to get any type of opportunity. And especially to watch, you know, his teammate Duke Williams kind of arrive on the scene against the Titans two weeks ago. Uh, probably has lit all types of fires under him. And it's somebody I've actually been trying to track down this week to talk to him a little bit. I've been talking to a couple of his teammates about him. And I think it's just been a lack of opportunity. And, you know, through the first three weeks, he's only been about 20% of the snaps in the games where he was healthy. That's a significant drop-off from uh, he was averaging 50% yeah. uh, in that stretch down last season uh, when they when the offense got clicking. So I think that whether John Brown's in the lineup or not, when Foster is thrown out there, and he was thrown out there, you know, a, a few times, he's got to take advantage of it. Uh, he's got to run good routes. He has to get open. He has to kind of rebuild that chemistry with Josh Allen that thinks where it was last year when it was going really well. So it could be a situation that if John Brown can't play, but on that front, Sean McDermott said he thinks it's just more tightness uh, in the groin than anything else. Uh, so I don't think it would be it's as serious as maybe Foster's was that cost him a couple weeks here. Uh, but we'll definitely be monitoring that. The official uh, injury report comes out tomorrow. Ty Insecki, the right tackle, he was a full goal according to the Thursday injury report. How is How important is it for him to be back? Maybe not so much against Miami. Again, we've talked about the inferior talent on Miami. But just how important is he to this offensive line right now? Not that he's... You know, Anthony Munoz, he's no Hall of Fame right tackle, but Cody Ford has really struggled 
at right tackle, and many people, and I'm not sure how you feel about this, feel that he's much better suited to play guard in the NFL long term than tackle. What's your thoughts on that and Ty Insecki likely being back on on Sunday? Yeah, I think that they're doing enough right now to kind of hide Cody Ford's um, ineffectiveness as a pass blocker, and I think that that's good for his development because he needs to be on the field to get better. But like you said, it's hard to make a real convincing argument that his future is a tackle with how bad he's looked at times uh, against speed rushers. And really, we were talking about this earlier this week in the media room, he hasn't even really faced an elite speed pass rusher yet. I mean, there's some guys out there. Uh, Von Miller is going to be coming to town in a few weeks, and there, there are some guys that could really embarrass him if he's playing at this level. Now, with Ty Inseki, the problem is, even when he does get back to a level of health that will get him to suit up for game day, he's struggling to, to keep it there throughout the game. I mean, I've seen him in the locker room after games, and he just looks like he's struggling. So that that health issue with Ty Insecki kind of gives you hesitation when it comes to putting any type of confidence level in his ability to if, uh, effectively contribute over a course of weeks at a time. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of issues there, but I think that they're playing so well on the interior, uh, particularly uh, John Feliciano, who's been quite a fine, quite sure. a gem for Brandon Bean, uh, that they can move guys around and even guys like Ryan Bates, who you know probably was an afterthought when the Bills traded for him back there in preseason. He has been, wow, what a fine uh, – he's been as well. An undrafted guy who was playing uh, right tackle, I believe, in, at Penn State. Then they moved him to center in the preseason, played really well there. Uh, and then now he, he goes into a game at right tackle and probably you know fared a little bit better than Cody Ford has as a, as a uh, pass blocker. So, yeah, a lot of question marks, but this, this thing is so much uh, in a better place at this point of this season than it was last year that I don't think it's that much of a headache. they got a lot of uh, movable parts in there. I want to circle back to a guy that you mentioned earlier, Matt Milano. Now, when it comes to right tackle, if Inseki can't go, Cody Ford is at least capable of playing well. Tyler Croft doesn't even play this year, so Knox, Lee Smith, Sweeney, you got some depth at that tight end position. A lot of people like Robert Foster, and if John Brown for some reason can't go, even if he can, Robert Foster could have a role in this team eventually. So there's some depth there. But at linebacker, with Matt Milano being limited with a groin, how worrisome is that to you? Because this is a position, unlike most on this team, where I feel like there's at least adequate depth, if not good depth. The linebacking corp is relatively thin. How how concerned are you if Milano, maybe not so much this week again, we're going to keep beating this drum. They're playing Miami. But beyond this, going in the, say, Philly next week, which could be a huge game. How concerned are you about Matt Milano right now? Not overly concerned. I mean, I think that he is back doing um, some individual, more individual stuff than, you know, you, you go back and look at some of the other hamstring injuries. Uh, he seems to be further along at this point than, you know, uh, uh, Dawson Knox was in camp. Uh, Singletary and 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 Taron Johnson have been in season, so I think that's a, a good sign. But even if he's not able to go uh, this week, or even if it extends into next week, you have a, a veteran in Lorenzo Alexander who actually, when asked to play this Milano's role in relief against the Patriots last year, he led the Bills in tackles with 14, had an interception against Tom Brady. So he's a guy that. You know, it takes him off special teams a little bit, and that's something that that's an area where they really depend on him to kind of uh, get things going for them in, in that area of the game. But he is a more than capable uh, fill-in uh, understudy for Matt Milano. But it also the, the problem with that is too, though. Yeah, he'll be okay in coverage, and, and, and he'll he'll fill in. But it takes away some of his. Uh, you know, what they like to use him for in, right. in that, that third down pass rush. And so if he's out there for, you know, 60, 70, 80% of the snaps, you're not really able to kind of let him pin his ears back uh, with a full gas tank as much. So it definitely has an impact, but they have the pieces in place. Corey Thompson, uh, he's been out there practicing uh, on, a, on a limited basis. It looks like he's come a long way on that ankle. Uh, so maybe by Philly, he could be ready to go. And he played real well in spots last year. And that's a guy that they've been real high on, Leslie Frazier in particular. So they have some options. Surely on the offensive side, Singletary's probably chopping at the bit after missing these games. But again, the way the schedule works out, I'm sure if he's not 
100%, like all the way to 100%, he probably will sit for one more week. Do you kind of get that feeling with Milano, too, that even if he's, say, 90 95%, they might just play it safe because of what the schedule says this week and uh, wait till next week to try to get him back on that field? Yeah, I mean, unless something crazy happens and he just feels really, really good, why risk it? And they've shown this season that they're not willing to risk it. I think I feel like Taron Johnson probably – you know, could have played against Tennessee. But, again, they're just being careful because they're getting contributions with the depth that they've built here. I mean, Moran, Neal, Kevin Johnson, just in that defensive secondary, have played really important roles uh, in backup roles for this team. And, you know, you see uh, Zay Jones, who starts the year. You bring in Duke Williams, and he's uh, been everything you hope he can be in the one game that he played. So they have a lot of depth across the roster, and that's a credit to Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott mentioned that uh, this week. And so I think going in, they're, they're not worried about uh, that as much because the mindset is all on this, you know, next guy up, uh, do your 111th, all the cliches that they like to throw around. You know, when you talk about the defense as a whole right now, it's an elite defense, and I don't think that's just hype anymore. I think that's just the way it is. Are they even better than what you hoped that they could be going into this season? And I've said this on this show a few times and on Twitter I'm not sure that Buffalo has any one specific guy who's a Pro Bowl lock right now on this defense, who's like an absolute lock to go to the Pro Bowl. But we could be sitting here four months from now and having a conversation and making a damn good case based on how they're playing right now for no less than six guys. I mean, I'm talking Trey White, Jordan Poyer, Micah Hyde, Milano, if he could stay healthy, Tremaine Edmonds, and Jerry Hughes. Those are six guys that could be in a conversation for a Pro Bowl spot right now. Definitely, and I think that you know, I think you can make that case for Micah Hyde right now that he's a Pro Bowl caliber. Like you said, yeah, locks, you never know because it seems like this defense uh, the last couple of years hasn't necessarily gotten the, the respect of right. the national perspective, but it's coming. And I think that, you know, you see the way that they're able to stifle a guy like Tom Brady and that that looks really good for this unit as a whole. So I think that, you know, Micah Hyde is a guy that's really stood out to me this season, uh, not only for his play, uh, but his leadership ability and the way that guys feed off of him. Because last year we talked so much about Kyle Williams and how important he was in the room and how guys respected him, guys like Harrison Phillips coming along and Tremaine Edmonds, and they looked to him to be that leader. And Micah even said, like, I'm not a real vocal guy. Like, that's not really my game. I kind of lead by example. And you know, he, again, this year is, is playing at a high level, but he's even taken that to the next level. And I think that there's so much synergy within this group. Yeah, I think that – I don't even think we've seen how good this unit can be yet because I don't even think they're getting to the quarterback and causing turnovers at the rate at which I think they can. This is a good game to, to get those kind of things going because uh, this Miami offense, particularly the offensive line, is, is terrible. I'm with Matt Perino from NewYorkUp.com. Dude, I'll tell you what, man. I never even really thought of it. I never processed it that way. Micah Hyde, not just on the field. That leadership, especially with Kyle Williams gone, that has been a ton. That's a great point right there. What about Jermaine Edmonds, man? I feel like he's really starting to merge into a breakout star. It's really seen the click for him in year two. Maybe last year he was around the ball more. This year he's getting to the ball. What have you seen in year two from Jermaine Edmonds that's really got you excited? it's just the recognition out there. Like that's one of the most important things for a middle linebacker, you know, outside of like the communication where he's kind of responsible for, you know, getting the defense set and making sure everybody's in their right positions and everything like that. But once the ball is snapped, especially in the run game, like it comes down a lot of times to your ability to uh, recognize not only where the running back is going to be, but where the offensive linemen are going to be. And you see him out at practice, working just tirelessly hour after hour with linebackers coach Bob Babich. They're out there just drilling in between the garbage cans uh, uh, out of practice, just the mental reps of trying to figure out where his assignment is, where he has to be in the gaps. And, you know, early returns have been so unbelievable. And it's you've got to remind yourself that the kid's still only 21 years old. Yeah. Like just imagine in two years when he's 23, 
what level of player you're going to be dealing with when he's finally comfortable in the role that they're asking him to play that he didn't even play in, in college. I mean, he was an outside linebacker. It's a whole new world uh, that he's finally really starting to settle into. So, yeah, sky's the limit. He's been so good. I think that, you know, in, in November and December, that's when you could see the real jump uh, into that Pro Bowl caliber, caliber level for a guy like Tremaine Edmonds. Ed Oliver, not putting up numbers, per se, right now. Not a lot of tackles. Doesn't have any sacks. But that doesn't mean he's not playing well. He's making an impact out there. So it seems to me, anyway. What's your take on him? You know, I think he's been, uh, I think he's been good. I think that when you take a guy ninth overall and the fanfare and press that he got in college, you expect the numbers, you know, to kind of be there early on. Um, because that's what you you figured you were signing up for. And there was a lot made when he was drafted, and he came in here and talked about it. He was out of position in college. They were asking him to play the nose tackle position. Here in Buffalo, they're moving him to that three-technique spot, which you know feel, theoretically is going to allow him to rush the quarterback a little bit more. But the problem is he's facing a lot of double teams. He's pretty undersized for the position, and he's still figuring out how to manage all of that. So he's been good in stretches. He's been, uh, he's doing what they've, what they're asking him to do, and he's developing. And I think it's just going to take a little bit more time, maybe, for him to figure things out. But at the same time, his attitude has impressed me because I, I remember when we were covering the draft, you know, throughout the off season, one of the red flags with with Oliver was his attitude in college or the perceived attitude issues. Yeah, uh, I haven't seen that to be the case, and it seems like Leslie Frazier. Uh, raves about you know how his work ethic and how he is in the room. So that's a, a really good sign for a guy that's coming in here with the talent that he has, uh, that he's willing to put in the work. Even like Hyde told me uh, back in uh, I think it was training camp or mini camp, he was really or Tre'Davious White. He was impressed with how he came in here and immediately hit the books. Like he was studying the, the game plan. He was tearing through through it, trying to get himself mentally to the place he needed to be to start things off. So the work ethic is there, and I think that the, the stats and the results will, will come as we, as we get to this season. I wanted to save Josh Allen for the last part of our Bills conversation here because no matter who I'm talking to, whenever the conversation of Josh Allen comes up, it oversaddles the rest of the, of the chat for obvious reasons. I mean, he's the most important player on the team. He's the most well-known player on the team. It's been a mixed bag for him this year. Obviously, he's had some really good moments, a couple good games, and then he's had a couple stinkers. He's made some awful decisions at times, but he's also done a lot of good things as well. How are you feeling about him right now? And granted, yes, he's only in year two. He's only started, I think, what, 16 games now in the NFL. Obviously, much of work in progress still, but when you sit back right now, you evaluate him, and you're around him all the time. You're covering this team. What are your thoughts right now on Josh Allen? You know, I think that if you would have told me going into the season after everything that we saw last year that in four of the first five games he'd be over 60% passing and in one of those games against the Tennessee Titans defense that, you know, is pretty good, especially in the secondary, one of the best in the league with a Pro Bowl caliber or all-pro caliber uh, safety, that he would be over 70% against that defense for the first time in his career. I would have probably told you, hey, dial it back just a little bit. Yeah. But here's the, here's the problem with, with what's happening with Josh Allen, and I think this is where the struggle as an evaluator of him as a, as a player comes in is what's being done with him is a really, really hard process. Like I, I, I think I mentioned, mentioned it on a few shows. I almost view it as like, Frankenstein like he was born into this league as like this gunslinger this unbelievable uh at unbelievably athletic huge arm uh risk-taking type of quarterback and they're trying to Frankenstein him and build him in the image of what they want him to be and that's a hard process to go through for a guy going back to training camp last year who was missing so badly on some of those short throws and those running back screen plays to get him to where he is now has been probably a painful and uh, process of drilling and drilling and drilling. And I think I mentioned it over the course of the offseason in, in mini camp and in training camp. That's all they were doing. That's why they brought Cole Beasley. So he's doing that really well, actually. But 
I think he's lost a little bit of that downfield prowess that he showed at times last year because they've been so diligently working on the short stuff. So that stuff has to me, those two um, people have to somehow figure out a way to merge. And so where you're still able to be a downfield deep threat, you're still able to take advantage of some of those um, opportunities, but you maintain that efficiency in the short to intermediate game because that's where guys like you know Patrick Mahomes and Aaron Rodgers they, Tom Brady, I mean, more than anybody, that's where they really frustrate defenses is, you know, just when you, they dink and dunk you, they can go and beat you down the field as well, uh, even for Brady, who's never been known for his arm strength. So it's a work in progress. I think that he's ahead of schedule in some areas, but now it's going to be about bringing that all together, and that's a lot on Brian Dable, and, and he knows that. And I, I think I'm pretty, I'm pretty high on Brian Dable as a – as a play caller and as a, a, a talent developer uh, from what I've seen, you know, you know, guys like Robert Foster and Duke Williams all coming under the tutelage of, of Brian Dable in this system. Uh, so it'll be interesting to watch, but I think early signs, I think patience is the key. This is a very raw guy coming out of Wyoming who played nobody in college. I mean, he was playing guys that probably can't even sniff the XFL at this point. So it, there's going to be a process here for him to develop. And I think at this stage in year two, you're sitting at 4-1, and one and he's at, what, 64% completion percentage in year two on pace for about 3,700 yards. Not bad. So if this team even wins the games that they're supposed to win, okay, games that I think they'll be significantly favored or right there to be favored. They got to get to 10 wins. They didn't, I mean, you got Miami twice. So if you beat Miami twice, they stink. You got the Jets at home, they stink. Well, let's maybe I should pump the brakes a little bit on that. Let's see how the Jets are going to be. You got Denver at home, and you got Washington at home, who definitely stinks. I mean, just right there, you beat those teams, you're at nine wins already. And if you just win one more game, you're at 10. I, I'm kind of like, I'm trained because I'm a Buffalo guy. You know, spent my whole life watching Buffalo teams. I'm trained to be pessimistic, waiting for that carpet to always come out from underneath my feet. But you look at the schedule. You look at this team right now. You look at this defense. It's really hard for me to not see them getting to maybe at least 10 wins. What do you think? I mean, I predicted 10 wins going into the season, but I think that the expectation now with the way that they play to start the season has to be at 11. Uh, like you said, there, there are nine wins that you probably mark off at this point that should be given, like good teams win those games. And then you look at, you know, a few of these opponents, the Cowboys on the road on Thanksgiving, big kind of game. And I don't necessarily think the Cowboys are as good as I think a lot of people expected going into the season. Yeah. Now they're down. Everybody overreacted to last week's game against the Jets. They were down both of their starting tackles. And on that offensive line, missing those two guys, that's a big deal. So I don't want to jump too fast there. But even the Patriots. They out the Bills outplayed the Patriots in Week Four. If Josh Allen doesn't go down, if they don't block that that punt, if Josh Allen makes one less mistake in that game, who knows what could have happened? They they almost doubled them up in total yardage. So they just have to be better uh, and and more uh, play sound complementary football in some of these games against some of the better opponents, and they're going to be right there in all of these games. And then you're talking about you know I know the Patriots are good and they're six and zero. They got a tough five game stretch coming up here pretty soon. So that yeah. record might not be as uh, clean as it looks right now. That that December twenty second game could be a lot more interesting than I think anybody, even the most um, staunch uh, defenders of the process and, and, and this this rebuild uh, could have anticipated going into the season. Yeah, I mean we didn't even mention Baltimore coming to Buffalo in December. Who knows how the weather's gonna be how if Lamar Jackson's gonna be healthy at that point. We didn't talk about the Steelers, even though it's a road game. I mean, they literally don't have a quarterback right now. So, yeah, absolutely, man. They could get to 10. And I didn't know you predicted that before the season. I want to be honest with you, I didn't. I said they were going to win seven games, and I'm looking like an idiot right now. But I'm glad to look like an idiot when it comes to stuff like that. Pat, 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 you don't don't feel bad, buddy. You know, that's why they pay me the big bucks over here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, listen, before we get out of here, man, so you've been on the podcast twice before. This is your third time now. The first time you were on, you, like, quite literally were just hired by New York Up. Second time I had John was after last season ended. We hooked up for wings, and we take the show at the Autobahn North. Those wings are awesome. By the way, those chicken fingers. <clears throat> God, you were so good. Anyway, me and you take the show there in Amherst. 
Now, have you gotten a little more comfortable covering the Bills beating year two? You're not a rookie, so to speak, anymore last year. You're kind of thrown in. Like I said, you got hired actually kind of right before camp started, if I remember correctly, somewhere around that time. So you didn't have a lot of time of preparation. But now you've had an entire offseason. You've gotten to know the organization a lot better. You've developed some relationships with some of the players. In between year one and year two is a little bit more of a comfortable process for you right now? Oh, yeah, 100%. It's a completely from light years ahead of where I was at this time last year. And one of the big problems I tell people all the time is I was hired and I started a week before training camp began. Yeah. So I had, even though I was I was very familiar with the Bills as a team and an organization, I'd spent five years like with my, kind of like with blinders on, everything MMA uh, all the time because there's yeah. no offseason in the UFC. So now getting a chance to not only have, go through a full season, but then a full off season of seven months of just nonstop research and study and going to the combine, the senior bowl, um, the owners meetings. I was out there and going through the free agency and the draft. I mean, this is a completely different ball game. And I, you know, I've even talked to a lot of fans that say that they noticed the difference in my coverage from year one to year two. And you're sure. always, we're always growing and developing, at, you know, as professionals, as people. And, um, I, I, one thing I will say, like, you know, I know this is probably a lib service and I'm a Buffalo guy. So of course I chill out a little bit for, you know, the city a, a lot of times, but there aren't a lot of jobs where you'll have, uh, in, in, in sports media where you have a fan base that's this engaging and this willing to constantly, uh, communicate and, and, and have discourse about topics that, you know, you can announce that, you know, Ray Ray McLeod is signed to the practice squad, a, a six-round pick that, you know, really, I mean, it's not a huge deal. And you can get, you know, 10, 20, 30 replies on a tweet. I mean, that's what you're dealing with here. And that's what's made it so fun for me is that every day, everything that we're doing and talking about it always feels like a big deal. And that's that's so fun. You feel a little bit more like recognized around town now that you're not the new reporter on the block. And I also know you get out. You do a lot of shit, too. I know you did a thing with your colleague Ryan Talbot at Potathon 3 just last week, which looked like that was a lot of fun, by the way. Yeah, that's a great time, man. I love doing stuff like that, getting out in the community, getting a chance to talk to some fans. Because uh, it's funny, we all talking to each other on Twitter all the time, but getting a, a, it, out there and being able to put a face to a, a, a Twitter handle is always a fun time. And, uh, well, actually, um, it's great uh, pub for this weekend. We're gonna, I'm going to be out in the tailgates I think I'm going to start at the Rockpile Report. Uh, I'm going to be over at theirs a little bit at early morning, and then I'll be over at Hammer's Lot uh, for a live uh, pregame show uh, with my good friend, Marcel Louis-Jacques from ESPN. Yeah, Marcel's cool, man. That's awesome. That's good yeah, stuff. Yeah, Last question. Okay, so you're covering the team now year two. You're far more knowledgeable about the team. You know, you're much more – I just we just talked about it. You're recognized more and more popular – of a reporter, but at the same token, are the trolls increasing a little bit now? Are they stepping their game up to try to annoy you on social media and stuff like that? That comes with the territory. My wife yelled at me the other day because she just recently got on Twitter because I'm obviously on there all the time, and so she was going through my 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 replies a little bit, and mm-hmm. she saw my Kyler Murray tweet from Sunday, which got a hefty amount of, of troll action. Um, <laughs> and she She yelled at me for one of my uh, responses. It, it, it was uh, she didn't like it. She didn't like the tone of my my response. And I was like, "Honey, welcome welcome to Twitter." I'm sorry, but it gets <laughs> it gets a little hostile from time to time. No, for the most part, I would say very very few uh, trolls in terms of the overall experience. But listen, man, uh, that tweet in particular is a great case study because there's not a lot of people in the Buffalo media that have been higher on Josh Allen than, than I have been. I, I'm, I've been open for it. I've taken criticism for it. And I'm fine with that because I'm just telling you what I see. I'm in here. I see the, the, the talent that the guy has, the potential that he has. But at the same time, it's not all, you know, roses and daisies. I mean, there are things that he does that, you know, he's got to improve on. The turnovers being one of them, the lack of consistency as a passer within games. And that was kind of my point of the tweet Listen, in this day and age, everybody throws for 300 yards. You know, that was the point. And I know a lot of people came back and said, well, this guy threw for 300 yards, and look where he's at. Yeah, but the point is that everybody kind of does it. Jameis Winston does it. Marcus Mariota has done it. And But I think behind all of that, you know, uh, anger or 
uh, is a lot of fear because, Pat, what happens if this kid isn't the guy? If we get a year from now or two years from now yeah. and, he's, and he's not good. Right. Can, and I think Bills fans look at that and they're like, man, can you imagine having to go back to the drawing board after all the hype, the highest drafted quarterback in, in the franchise's history, 20 years of just absolute terrible play at the position. I think that it's, it's scary to think about that, that prospect, the prospects of that. So I understand it, uh, but I think we should all just be realistic with what you're dealing with here and just understand it's a process, it's a project. Uh, but right now, like I said, you have to be happy with where he's at. Yeah, no question about it. All right, everyone out there listening, give Matt a follow on Twitter at Matt Perino. Of course, check out com. Not just for Matt's work, by the way, also for Ryan's as well. They both do really good work there. Thanks, man. It's always fun hooking up with you. You too, my man. Thanks for having me on. Hi, I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the podcast about broadcast. Every week since 2016, we've been bringing on broadcast leaders to talk about their experiences in radio, what they've seen, and where they believe it is all going. If you live and love radio, subscribe to the Sound Off Podcast with Matt Kundle wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so I want to keep doing things a little bit different here on this podcast, sometimes change it up, spice it up a little bit, so to speak, instead of just having straight Buffalo Bills and Sabres talk all the time. So on that note, from time to time, I'm going to have a little segment called 80s Podcast Polls. And what I'm going to do is pick a major single topic and then post a series of polls on my Twitter. And I'll do that earlier in the week. I'll give listeners of this podcast and followers of mine on Twitter a chance to vote on these categories. And then on the podcast, which I'll do on a Friday podcast because I'll put out the Twitter poll like in the middle of the week, I'll run down all the categories on the pod and the results for each and share a couple of thoughts of my own. And this time, I focused on 80s music. When I started this podcast, by the way, my goal was to have a semi-regular segment about the 80s. That's my decade, man. I love the 80s. It's where I came to as a teenager. When I grew up, just when life was awesome for me. And frankly, my goal of doing 80s stuff on this podcast, at least semi-regularly, has fallen like woefully short. I want to start changing that. So anyway, earlier this week, I did tweet out 12 separate polls involving the best of from different music categories. Not a huge voting turnout, at least not compared to other polls that I have put on Twitter sometimes. Um, sure, in part, it's because I didn't give any notice of what I was doing, stuff like that. But still, a few hundred votes on most categories, definitely a good enough sample size. And again, I'll be doing this every now and then on the podcast, not all the time, but every, I don't know, four weeks, six weeks, something like that. So make sure you are following me on Twitter if you're not already, at Pat Moran Tweet. So the next time I do this, you can vote in the next series of polls. And on that note, let's just dive ran into all them, and again, I did 12 of these, four nominees for each because that's all Twitter will allow is a maximum of four nominees for any poll that you do. First one, cheesiest group of the 80s, nominees were Wham, Culture Club, Thompson Twins, and Millie Vanilli. The winner was, oh, you know what, I ain't doing no drum roll, that's too goddamn annoying. I'm not going to pipe in that sound effect or anything like that, so no suspenseful drum rolls. On this segment, the winner was Millie Vanilli. Quite convincingly, by the way, 58% for Millie Vanilli, Wham at 22, Culture Club at 13%, and Thompson Twins at 7%. I got to tell you, there's 12 uh, categories here, and this is one of the very few where I don't really agree with the consensus. Were they cheesy? Yeah. But I don't know. To me, the definition of cheesy, and maybe I should have elaborated a little more. It's being lovable. Cheesy, when I think of cheesy music, I'm like, all right, well, this is cheesy, but God, I love it. It's so cool. I don't know people who, even to this date, and where it's fashionable to look back at 80s music, like Wham! and Culture Club and be all into it and say it's cool. 
I don't know anyone who thinks Millie Vanilli was ever really cool. They had a couple hits, and obviously they lip-synced, and that became their big deal, and then they were gone not long after that, of course. But I don't know, man. For me, it would have been Wham! or Culture Club. Those two, far and away, were the best in this group. Uh, Thompson Twins, I like them. 7%. That sounds about right, though. 7%. So anyway, Millie Vanilli, I don't agree with you guys. That one, the first category. Next one, best female group of the 80s. And this is a good one, man. You have the Go-Go's, you have Salt and Peppa, you have the Bengals, and you have Heart. And the winner was, and this was close, by the way, Heart. 39% of the vote. Second place, Salt and Pepper, 28. The Bengals at 22, and the Go-Go's at 11%. 11% a little bit low, but again, this is one of the few categories, by the way, where the winner had less than 40% of the vote. So this was a close one. I love Heart. I think Ann Wilson might have the best female voice, definitely the best female rock voice of all time. I mean, what's not to love about her? What's not to love about Heart? So I got absolutely no problem. I just think that a lot of people tend to forget about them. Even though they were very successful as a rock group and they were in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they're easily forgettable when you think of female groups from the 80s. Most people would think of the Go-Go's and the Bangles. So good on you guys for voting in hard. I would have done the same, 39%. I think that sounds just about right. Next category, this is one of the times where, and there's another time which I'll get to, where I think I kind of screwed up. This is Best Teen Pop Act of the 80s. And the nominees were Debbie Gibson, Tiffany, New Kids on the Block, and New Edition. And the winner, and I don't think anyone's going to be surprised listening right now, New Kids on the Block won two-thirds of the vote, 66%. Second place, New Edition at 15. Third, Debbie Gibson at 13. And Tiffany dead last with only 5% of the vote. This is where I have a problem where I kind of blame myself here. I don't think I should have compared New Kids on the Block to Tiffany or Debbie Gibson, although ironically... They've actually been on tour all year together at a mixtape tour with a couple other groups from that era. Tiffany deserves more than 5%. That's terrible. Okay, she was huge in the 80s. I remember her so well. I was such a big fan of Tiffany in the 80s. Debbie Gibson as well. New Kids on the Block were commercially so popular. They were always going to dominate this category. This is one of the few categories where, as I put it in, I'm like, well, they're going to win by a lot. In hindsight, I should have had groups. This could have been a square-off group. I should have had New Kids on the Block against New Edition. And Debbie Gibson and Tiffany, if they would have went one-on-one, that would have been interesting because they're very similar, but they're also very different in a way. They're without question the two teeny bop female singing stars of the 80s. So I kind of feel like I dropped the ball there, lumping them in with new kids on the block. But oh well, you live, you learn, man. So (laughs) next category, this might be my favorite category because I can make a reasonable case for any of these four. Best movie soundtrack of the 80s. Nominees were Dirty Dancing. Footloose, Top Gun, and Purple Rain. The winner, mildly surprising to me at least, Top Gun. Top Gun got 43% of the vote. Prince's Purple Rain was at 27%. Footloose was at 18%. And Dirty Dancing was last at 12%. I'll say this. any Again, you can make a case for any of these albums. I totally believe that. Dirty Dancing only having 12% is a little surprising. If my wife finds out, she might kill some of you guys who voted for the other three out there. Big Dirty Dancing fan. And that soundtrack was awesome. But again, all these soundtracks really were awesome. Top Gun, yo, I love Top Gun, obviously. But I can only think off the top of my head anyway. And again, I'm not looking at any album covers or notes or anything. But there was Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins. And there was Take My Breath Away by Berlin. I can't remember anything else from that from that soundtrack, but it was a very good soundtrack for sure. Personally, I thought Purple Rain would have won. That's who I would have predicted was going to be the winner. Great album, critically and commercially. My personal opinion, had I voted and it would have been only my vote, I would have voted for Footloose. I thought that was not just one of the best soundtracks of the 80s, I thought that was one of the best albums of the 80s, period. It was an absolute masterpiece of great songs. Again, I'm not looking at any notes, but just off the top of my head, you had the title song, Footloose by Kenny Loggins, Let's Hear It for the Boy by Denise Williams, Almost Paradise. I remember that song being on there. There's like five or six really good songs. I think there might have been five or six top 40 hits just from that album alone. Very underrated album, man. If you're only giving it 18%, it's one of the few categories where I'm kind of disappointed in you all. Anyway, moving on. 
Best Female Singer of the 80s. Now, this is a category where I dropped the ball with the nominee. I'll explain that in a second. The four nominees were Whitney Houston, Madonna, Janet Jackson, and Gloria Estefan. The winner, not surprisingly at all, this was always going to be a two-horse race, Whitney Houston, 60%, Madonna second at 32%, and then Janet at 5 and Gloria Estefan at 3%. So they only got 8% between the two of them. Like I said, this was always a two-horse race, and I got no problem with that. Whitney Houston, queen of the 80s. I mean, Madonna was probably the bigger pop star for sure. She probably had more commercial success. I'd have to look at the charts to know that for sure. But Whitney was the best female singer of the 80s, no question about it. Here's the omission where I screwed up, man. I effed up bad here. Pat Benatar should have been on this as a nominee ahead of at least Gloria Estefan, if nothing else. I don't think Pat Benatar would have won. I'm not sure she would have put a real dent in Whitney Houston's vote total or Madonna's for that matter. But the point being is Pat Benatar was a monster in the 80s. He had so many good hits. Invincible, Love is a Battlefield, uh, We Belong. I, I can go on and on. Again, all off the top of my head here. She deserved to be on there. I really screwed up. So my bad on that. Next category, Best Commercial Rock Group of the 80s. The nominees were Guns N' Roses, U2, Bon Jovi, and Foreigner. Winner, a little bit surprised here because this is a social media poll. Guns N' Roses, 44%. Second place, U2 at 29%. And then Bon Jovi and Foreigner were both tied at 14%. Look, Guns N' Roses is were a dynamo. They're a big time rock and roll monster of the 80s. So many anthem songs. So I could definitely see why they won. I personally would have predicted that U2 would have won just because I know so many. It seems like everyone in the world I know is a big U2 fan. Everyone that is, except for me. I'm going to be honest with you guys. I'm not a big U2 fan. Sorry. Sal Capaccio and so many other Buffalo sports media people out there I know that are big U2 fans. But I respect the hell out of them. Don't get me wrong. I'm not hating on U2. I respect them. Just not a big YouTube fan. But anyway, having said that, I would have thought that they would have won. Bon Jovi getting 14%, that really satisfies me because they're so commercial pop and I can't stand them. And my wife is like the biggest Bon Jovi fan on earth. I think she's uh, seen them at least three times in concert. I'm, I've been bashing John Bon Jovi for years. Her, she hates it. I don't like them. 14%. Job well done, guys. Job well done. Next one. Biggest blowout of all of them, by the way, here. Best metal group of the 80s, I have Metallica, Slayer, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. I already knew who was going to win this and that it was going to be close. I was more interested in seeing who would finish in second. Of course, Metallica won 74% of the vote, highest of any category they had out of the 12, almost three-quarters of the vote. And then in second place, it went to Iron Maiden, 14%. Judas Priest at 7%. Slayer at 6%. I'm going to be completely honest with you. Was it a big metal guy? Didn't grow up loving metal, so I don't have a lot of insight to offer on that, other than Metallica obviously is very deserving of winning that category. Next one, best hard rock slash glam rock group of the 80s, and the nominees were Motley Crue, Whitesnake, Poison, and Skid Row. The winner was, at nearly two-thirds of the vote, Motley Crue, 66%. Second place, Poison at 15, then Whitesnake at 14, and Skid Row all the way down at 4%. Not surprised at all, and I also agree with this one. Molly Crew is a very popular hard rock group in the 80s, very commercially successful. Big fan base, still have a big fan base to this day. I guess if I'm a little bit surprised, I thought Molly Crew and Poison, the margin would have been closer than it was. I would have expected maybe... 50% from Motley Crue and maybe 30, 33% from Poison, but they only got 15%. And I know my sister would absolutely hate that big Poison fan. So, eh, I'm all right with that, though. Next one, best pop slash rock group of the 80s. This might be along with the movie soundtrack category, my favorite personal category, because I absolutely love all four of these groups. I could have voted for any of them, but I really struggled with two of them in particular. The nominees were Duran Duran, All in Oats, Huey Lewis in the News, and Tears for Fears. Now, if this was just my vote and it wasn't a consensus, I would have been struggling forever between Hall and Oats and Huey Lewis in the News. Those two groups might literally be, not might, they are literally my favorite two pop groups of the entire 80s. I absolutely love both those groups, so I would have struggled. 
This was a very close vote, by the way. One of the very few where the winner got under 40%, and that winner was Paul Oates, 39%. Huey Lewis in the News at 27%. Duran Duran at 20 And Tears for Fears at 14 A little surprised that Tears for Fears did 14%. I thought it would have been a little bit lower. Not that I didn't like them. And not that 14% is high, but again, Howlin' Oates, Huey Lewis in the News, and Duran Duran, very successful groups there. I thought nobody would have voted for Tears for Fears. Again, you could have named any of them and I wouldn't have hated on it. I feel like Howlin' Oates is deserving, but man, man, oh man, oh man. Love me some Huey Lewis in the News there. Love them. Love them. All right, down to the nitty-gritty here, the last few. Best male pop singer of the 80s. and there's a twist to this one, okay? I also added best male pop singer in the 80s whose name is not Michael Jackson. I knew if I put Michael Jackson on there, 80% of the people were going to vote for him, as they should, because I would too. So that wasn't a fair fight. I omitted him intentionally. And the nominees were Prince, Bill Collins, George Michael, and Brian Adams. And your winner is Prince. 54% of the vote. Phil Collins at 33% of the vote. That's a good good size vote for him. Finishing in second. I feel like a lot of people in Buffalo probably just saw Phil Collins in concert and are feeling sentimental about him, so they gave him the vote. Uh, Brian Adams in third at eight, and George Michael at 5%. Eh, my only comment on that, and I agree with Prince, by the way, I feel like George Michael getting only 5%, he, I feel like he got the staff a little bit. He should have done better than that. Next category, second last category, actually, Best Rock Group of the 80s. And the nominees were Journey, The Police, Def Leppard, and Van Halen. And the winner, and this is at least mildly, if not more than mildly surprising to me, Van Halen at 40% of the vote, they won. Second place, Journey at 24. Third, Def Leppard at 19. And the police last at 17. I expected this category to be close, and it certainly was. And nobody got over 40%, and no one got less than 16%. I think I felt like the police would have been lower, and I did not think Van Halen would have won. I actually thought they would probably would have finished third. I thought this was going to come down to Journey or Def Leppard. And I gave the edge to Journey. I'm talking about in terms of how the vote would go, my prediction. Reason being is, Unlike some of these other groups, Journey won a lot of young fans by having their song. Why is it escaping my mind? Oh, my God. The, the finale, Don't Stop Believing. Jesus. Don't Stop Believing, being on the finale of The Sopranos. People are still watching that to this day. That really kind of revitalized that song, gave that, put that group back in the spotlight, popular, repopularized them, I should say. So I figured that they were going to win. And I had a vote. You know, I probably would have voted for them or Def Leppard. And I, maybe I should have been a little more clear. Is this David Lee Roth, Van Halen? Is this Sammy Hagar, Van Halen? Oh, Van Halen's a very good group, though, and very deserving. Straight up rock group, too, man. No gimmicks. Just really good rock and roll music. So, eh, I got no problem with that. Last one here, okay? Best male pop slash rock album of the 80s. The nominees were Thriller, Purple Rain, Born in the USA, and No Jacket Required. The winner, Thriller. Thriller with 49% of the vote, Born in the USA at 29%, Purple Rain at 19%, and No Jacket Required by Phil Collins at 3%. Um, I don't really consider myself surprised at all. Especially with Thriller winning, which, by the way, Thriller is not just my favorite album in the 80s. Thriller is probably, pound for pound, my favorite album in the history of music. It's, it's my favorite album. I love Thriller, so I absolutely think that's the right call. I'm a little surprised about one thing. It's that Born in the USA was second and Purple Rain was third. I feel like maybe I would have put Purple Rain second, although I could certainly see why Born in the USA had 29% of the vote, which is a lot, by the way, because it was a very, very popular album in the 80s. One of the all-time iconic album covers as well with Bruce Springsteen. And then Phil Jackson, 
or I'm sorry, Phil Collins, no jacket required, finishing dead last, and only 3%. It's not that that wasn't a very good album, because it was. The Studio, Take Me Home Tonight, I remember a couple other songs from that. That was a great album, very good album. The problem is, is that it went against three of the best albums, not just of the 80s, but of all time. So there you go, 12 podcast polls, all on different 80s music categories. You guys brought it. Great job, great job. Good decision making. Again, I'll do a segment on podcast polls every now and then. Maybe next time I do this in a month or so, we'll lock into some 80s movies categories. That sounds like it could be fun. Follow me on Twitter, at Tweet, so the next time I do indeed run these polls, you can get in on the action. Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless. And with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data. Coast-to-coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each, including hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers, we got you covered in Canada and Mexico. Plus, text and data in over 210 countries worldwide. All with the best phones or bring your own. That's pretty awesome. Get the best user experience on mobile at PulseCellular.com. All right, boys and girls, that is going to do it for this episode. Big thank you again, Matt Perino, Buffalo Bills beat reporter at NewYorkUp.com. One of my favorite people in the Buffalo sports media. Really like Matt a lot. I think he does a fantastic job covering the team. He's also a really good dude, man. I've had wings with Matt before. We've talked many, many times. So always appreciate having him on the podcast. If you, the listener out there, if you have not yet done so already, please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast right now. Literally, go do it right now. When you subscribe, you're going to get new episodes before anyone else does. You can find us on Apple Play, Google, iHeartRadio. Did I just say Apple Play? I meant Apple. What an idiot. Apple, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are found. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. only takes you a couple seconds to do so, and it really helps me continue to grow this show. Also, make sure you check out the Analytics Podcast YouTube channel. Besides highlight clips from current and past episodes of this podcast, we now have plenty of original audio content, and that library is just going to continue to grow. We're calling that Analytics Podcast Extra. That's content that is going to be exclusive to the YouTube channel. You won't hear it anywhere else, including this podcast. So go find Analytics Podcast on YouTube. Hit that little red subscribe button down that's just underneath those videos, that little bell right next to it, so you'll get notifications when new content is released. And then, of course, last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter, at Pat Moran Tweets. I'm constantly tweeting out podcast updates, upcoming guests, polls, which we kind of focused on in a segment earlier today, all kinds of other stuff on there. So again, at Pat Moran Tweets. Thank you. As always, for listening, I say it all the time, man, and I listen, I really mean it. I truly appreciate each and every single one of you that take any time out of your day, once a week, even more so twice a week, to listen to this podcast. It literally means the world to me, and I'm very thankful. Have a good weekend. Bill's Miami on Sunday. I'm sure we'll be talking about that on Tuesday's show. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.